Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. Today, we're going to be finishing up a series that's taken us all month to get through. Uh, it's actually a series that's been taking us through the book of James in the New Testament. This is a short book, actually, uh, located towards the end of the New Testament, just five chapters. And each week during this month, uh, we've had somebody different, with me having the privilege of wrapping it up here today, but somebody different speak on a different chapter of the book. And one of the things we learned early on that this book, the book of James, was written by someone named James. May, may not be much of a surprise there, but it wasn't just any old James. This was James, the brother of Jesus. And the interesting thing about James, the brother of Jesus, is that James, this James was not actually a follower of Jesus during what we call Jesus' earthly ministry. During those three years when Jesus was going around and preaching and teaching and healing and performing miracles and transforming lives, James just thought his brother was nuts. And he didn't want to have anything to do with him. And it wasn't until after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus that James became a fully devoted follower of Jesus himself. Well, James would go on to become one of the leaders in the early church. He was the head of the church in Jerusalem. Pastor Jay talked about that uh, the very first week of this series. And, and James was even referred to by the Apostle Paul as a pillar of the church because of the stability that he brought and because of the leadership he provided for the early believers. And all throughout this month, one of the things we've seen from this book of James is that faith must be lived out in daily life. You can't just say you believe in Jesus and not have it affect the way you live. Faith that makes no difference really isn't faith at all. Your walk must match your talk. And so James wrote this short letter to the Jewish believers in the early church who had been dispersed or had been scattered throughout the region. And he was explaining to them what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. We've seen all along the way that James has been talking about a practical faith, one that should make a real difference in our lives and in our relationships and in our world. And chapter 5 is no different. James continues here to lay out some very basic, practical ways to live as a follower of Jesus. I'd encourage you to read through the entire chapter. We're not going to have time to go through it all here this morning. But what we're going to do is we're going to focus in toward the end of the chapter where James talks about prayer. Several years ago, I remember seeing on the news uh, that archaeologists believed they had discovered the ossuary of James. Anybody remember that? It's about 20 years ago now. They thought they had discovered the ossuary of, of James, or the bone box of James. You see it up here on the screen. Let me explain what this is. Back in the first century, when someone died, one of the Jewish burial practices was for the body to be first placed in a tomb and left there to decompose for a period of one year. And once that year was done, they would take whatever remains remained and they would put them inside this bone box or this ossuary. Now, this practice was only in vogue for about 90 years, from 20 B.C. to about 70 A.D. So if you ever stumble upon an ossuary, a Jewish bone box, then you can narrow down the date pretty quickly. But this particular ossuary supposedly included an inscription on it. 
an inscription that was in Aramaic, and it identified the occupant as James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Three common names in the first century. But what if this really were the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus, the writer of this New Testament book? Considering that as a possibility, this ossuary was considered to be quite the archaeological find. And the box was put on display at places all around the world, including here in Canada. It was put in the, Ontario, uh, the Royal Ontario Museum for a time in Toronto. Now, the inscription on the box has since been disputed. Whether it was original to the box or if it was added later, some people claimed it was a forgery, some people uh, defend it, uh, say that it's real. Personally, I don't think it matters one way or the other. There's no matter of faith that's affected by it. But if it really were the bone box of James, if it really was his ossuary, and if it really did contain his remains, there is one thing I'd like to find out. I'd like to find out if there's anything that we can learn from his knees. Let me explain that, because that's a really weird thing to say. It feels weird coming out of my mouth even. So let me explain why I would want to know about James' knees. He's not the bee's knees. I want to talk about James' knees. Why? Well, according to tradition, James had a bit of a nickname. I had nicknames as a kid, some I wasn't so fond of. Uh, maybe you can identify with that too. But James had a nickname that I think he would have embraced, uh, humbly, but with honor. He was known as Old Camel Knees. Old Camel Knees, like Old Camel Knees. I saw Old Camel, camel Knees this morning down at Tim Hortons, that kind of thing. But why? Why would he have a nickname like that? Why would anyone be referred to as Camel Knees? Well, just a guess. But I suppose it would be because he had knees like a camel, right? So what are the knees of a camel like? Well, earlier this year, uh, Kingswood University in Sussex organized a trip to Israel, and several people from King's Church were able to take part uh, of, be part of that trip, including our very own A.J. Guptel. Now, you may or may not know A.J. A.J.'s the, the tech whiz behind all the lights and the video and the sound here at, King, here at King's Church at this campus and all of our campuses. He keeps things going for us. And he was able to go on this trip. And while he was there in Israel, A.J. had the opportunity to ride on a camel. I don't know. Maybe he was a little hesitant at first, but he was able to get over that hump. And he got on the <laughs> He was able to get on the camel and take it for a ride. Take a look at the video. <laughs> all right, looks like he did all right there, doesn't it? It's interesting watching that video there, and you saw towards the end there were some buses and some vans in the background. Makes me think back a couple uh, thousand years, uh, not many people own cars. Uh, hopping on a bus, going from place to place, that wasn't really a viable option either. Uh, so how did people get around? Well, a couple of the prime options, top, a couple of the top options they had, they could walk or they could ride on the back of an animal like a camel. Now, riding a camel is one thing. Getting on a camel is another. How do you get on the highest part of a camel? Well, the good news is that you don't have to climb up to the camel's level. As you saw in the video, 
the camel will come down to yours. You see, camels get down and they kneel as a way to allow passengers to get on and off. Uh, they also sleep on their knees. In fact, they spend a lot of time kneeling. And with all that time on their knees, especially on the hot, dry, sharp desert sands common in that part of the world, their knees could easily become damaged, if not for a built-in layer of protection. Large, thick pads that cushion the joints of their knees. So, back to James. Why is he called camel knees? It was because James could be found so much of the time down on his knees in prayer, to the point that his own knees had become calloused and hardened like those of a camel. In fact, the second century, uh, second century historian Hegesippus, I really don't know how to say his name, but you don't either. <laughs> so we're going to go with Hegesippus. Hegesippus wrote this. He said that uh, James would enter the temple and be found prostrate on his knees, beseeching pardon for the people, so that his knees were callous like a camel's in consequence of his continual kneeling in prayer to God. James had a reputation for being a man of prayer, and he knelt in prayer so often that his knees had become hardened and callous like those of a camel. And here in James chapter 5, we get to read what James has to say about prayer and why it was so important to him. Let's take a look at what he wrote in verses 13 through 18 of James chapter 5. He said, Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. All right. James spent so much in time in prayer because he knew that there is tremendous power in prayer. So for the rest of our time here this morning, we're going to talk about prayer. Let me give you three observations based out of this passage. Three observations about prayer. The first one is this. Prayer gives us access to God and in return invites Him into our lives. Prayer gives us access to God and in return invites Him into our lives. James recognized the privilege of prayer. He knew that in both good times and in bad times, whether we're facing times of anguish and hardship or if everything's going well for us, we can turn to God in prayer. Verse 13, he said, Are any of you suffering hardships? That word there is actually referring to mental anguish. Uh, but are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. There was a man a couple hundred years ago named Joseph Scriven. Joseph Scriven uh, was a man who took the instructions of James here seriously. He was born in Ireland in 1820. He was educated at Trinity College, and as a young man, it looked like he had a bright and promising future ahead of him. In fact, he was engaged to be married to a lovely, beautiful Irish girl. His life seemed to be perfect. Everything was going his way. But suddenly, things took a turn for the worse. The day before he was to be married, on the eve of their wedding, 
his fiance, died tragically in a drowning accident. Joseph was 25 years old at the time, and his life was suddenly thrown into turmoil. And really, for the first time in his life, he had this, this weight of pain and anguish that he had to deal with. And so what he decided that he needed in his life was a fresh start. So he packed up and he moved. He left Ireland and he ended up settling right here in Canada. And when he got here, he decided that he'd keep himself busy by helping the poor and by helping the homeless. And so he started giving clothes to people who needed it. He started sharing food with those who had none of their own. He devoted himself to helping the underprivileged. In fact, other people started to notice what he was doing, and they thought it was strange that he was doing so much for people who could do nothing for him in return. Well, it was about that time when he received word that his mother had become seriously ill. By now, it had been about 10 years since he had lost his fiancée, and Joseph had been working through his pain over all this time. And now, as he looked back on what, he, on what he had gone through, he decided he would write some words of encouragement for his mother. He wrote these words. He wrote, What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Of course, those words were later set to music, uh, became one of my favorite hymns, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. When we're going through times of loneliness or distress or fatigue or loss or despair, when we're experiencing some kind of anguish or hardship, Jesus invites us to bring all of our pain to him in prayer. And he welcomes us with open arms and offers us his peace. The book of Hebrews explains this a little further. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read this. We read, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do. Yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. You know, sometimes, sometimes when we pray about our problems, the problems change. Sometimes when we pray about our problems, our perspective changes. Sometimes when we pray about our problems, Jesus extends to us the grace and the mercy that we need to get through it. But in every case, every time when we pray, we are changed. You know, it's interesting to me. Have you ever noticed how the people who are closest to us really define the people that we become? And the closer we are, the greater the impact they have on our, on our lives. You often see this within families. Uh, the values and the priorities, the likes and the dislikes of the parents often become the values and the priorities, the likes and the dislikes of the children. I've seen this in my own life. Uh, this past year, as, as many of you know, this past year has been a difficult time for my family, uh, with both my mother and my father passing away just within four months of each other. And as I went through that time, and as I reflected on who they have been to me, it was clear to me that I am the person I am today in no small measure because of who they have been to me. 
There's no denying that I'm their son. They raised me, they taught me, they mentored me, they infused me with their values. Even some of my mannerisms I got from them, and they are reflected in me. Actually, this is true with my own sons now as well. My oldest son is spending a few, uh, Nate, he's spending a few weeks working on Caton's Island this summer, uh, working in some of the kids' camps there. And this past Friday, when I went to pick him up after a week at camp, he told me how he had met the speaker at camp that week and how the speaker looked at him and said, you look like you must be Greg Hansen's son. <laughs> Poor kid. <laughs> but there is a family resemblance there. When we pray, an amazing thing happens. God begins to transform us. And the more we get to know him and the more we connect to him through prayer, the more we begin to look like him. That's when he shapes us into his image. That's when he forms the character of Christ within us. We start to take on a family resemblance with the Father. Richard Foster wrote a book years ago. I think it's about 50 years ago now, but it's a classic book. I'd encourage you to read it. It's called Celebration of Discipline. Uh, and it's a book about different disciplines or habits or practices that you can bring into your life to help you grow closer to God. Fantastic book. And in the section on prayer, he wrote this. He said, to pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. In prayer, real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things he desires, to love the things he loves, to will the things he wills. He transforms us into his likeness. Or think of it like a magnet. I remember as a kid being fascinated by magnets, and I still am. There's just something that attracts me to them. I'm drawn to them. Must be this magnetic personality, I guess. But I remember, I remember as a kid, standing in front of our Harvest Gold refrigerator in our kitchen, uh, playing with the magnets on the fridge. I guess I had kind of a hang-up with them. Uh, and in particular, I loved seeing the effect that magnets had on other metals. Anybody else play with magnets as a kid? Yeah, I keep saying as a kid. Exactly, I still do. But I love playing with, with magnets. I, I have a couple quarters with me here this morning. Now these quarters, I can bring them together, nothing happens. They're not magnetic. They're, I can put them together, you can hear them clicking, but they're not sticking. Uh, there's nothing magnetic about them, nothing that's bringing them together. I also have a magnet with me here today. There's something amazing that happens when you take some, a piece of metal as simple as a quarter or a, a nail, something like that, and you connect it to the magnet, you stick it to it, suddenly this quarter becomes magnetic itself. And it will hold the other quarter now. You see that up there? Now I know why people get manicures. Uh, <laughs> but, sorry, a little, little aside there. Anyone have an emery board here? It's amazing what happens here, but what is happening here? When you bring a piece of metal, like a quarter or a nail or something like that, a paper clip, whatever, when you bring it in contact with a magnet, that piece of metal begins to take on the very properties of the magnet. I know it's a polarizing subject, <laughs> but it starts to take on a north and south pole. There's a polarity that develops within the metal, so it becomes magnetic itself. 
the closer you bring it to the magnet, the more those properties begin to, uh, to be exhibited in the metal. That's what it's like with prayer. The closer we get to God through prayer, the more he transforms us and the more we start to take on his characteristics. We begin to become godly. We become Christ-like. We become holy. That's the power of prayer. Prayer invites God into our lives to move us and to transform us. The second observation I want to share with you this morning is that God uses our prayers to bless and minister to others. God uses our prayers to bless and minister to others. And this is incredible, really. Uh, this is incredible. Through prayer, God actually invites me and he invites you to join him in what he's doing in someone else's life. James put it like this. He said in verse 14, Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, here in this passage, in James chapter 5, James uses the example of praying for someone's healing. We've taken this seriously here at King's Church, and so as a result, we've been praying for healings, and we've seen God move in miraculous ways. In fact, every time we do the Alpha Course, there's an entire week devoted to healing. We've seen people healed of arthritis. We've seen people regain mobility in their arms. Uh, we've had people regain hearing. Uh, we had somebody with pain in their sternum this past year that, that disappeared. The pain disappeared. They didn't disappear. But multiple times when we have prayed for healing and God has, has healed people. But aren't all of these just coincidences? Well, I like what William Temple says. He's a former Archbishop of Canterbury, and he says this, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, they don't. <laughs> but James here is talking about healing. And understand, at our services, when we share words of knowledge at the end of our services sometimes, and we pray for healing for specific issues, that's not us telling God what to do. It's us joining in with what God is already doing. Uh, sometimes we see that healing happen in the way that we're expecting or asking for it to happen. And sometimes God answers in different ways. We've had entire messages devoted to the subject of healing, to that topic. Um, and we're not going to get into all that today, but if you'd like to check that out for yourself, go back in, in YouTube and you'll find it there. I think the last one was in November. Uh, so you can scroll back on, on the King's Church YouTube page and uh, find it there. But while James specifically talks about healing here in this passage, I don't think he's limiting prayer for others exclusively to healing. We can pray for one another in many ways. Uh, we see that in other passages, like in Ephesians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul asked for prayer for himself. He started out saying uh, in verse 18, pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion, but stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me also. Pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right word so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for the Jews and the Gentiles alike. I am in chains now. He was in prison at this time. I am in chains now, still preaching this message as God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. So Paul here is asking the believers in the city of Ephesus to pray for him as he was preaching and teaching about Jesus, even while he was imprisoned at the time. Paul also talked about how he prayed for others. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, 
Paul said, so I have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Or how about when Paul told Timothy, his young apprentice, he said to him, Timothy, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. Do you see it? Do you see it? Woven throughout Scripture, we are urged to pray for others and to intercede on their behalf. Why? Because God chooses to use our prayers to bless and minister to them. Which makes me wonder, you know, those times when I question how God could ever use someone like me, and when doubt sets in and I neglect to pray, I wonder what blessings people miss out on. I wonder about those times when God has invited me to be part of what he is doing but I felt insecure or unworthy or fearful, and so I didn't pray. What miracles have we missed out on because of this? And can I be honest with you? This is something I've struggled with my entire life. I wholeheartedly believe that God can do incredibly more than we could ever ask or think or even imagine. But I struggle to believe that he'll do it through me. Even after I've seen him use me time and time again, even today, I struggle to believe it. And what I've learned and what I have to remind myself of is that it's not up to me. It's up to him. You know, there's a quote I heard years ago, and I'm not even sure where I first heard it anymore, and it's really kind of a cliche. Uh, so you've probably heard it before too. And if you have, and if it has grown stale, then hear it afresh here today. It simply says that God is more concerned with your availability than with your ability. He's more concerned with your availability than with your ability. You see, God's got quite a track record of taking plain old ordinary average people or even below average people and doing supernatural things through them just because they were available to him. Moses. Moses was just a stuttering, cowardly old man when God called him to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Esther was just a young Jewish girl when God used her to save all the Jews living in Persia from extermination. David? David was just a little boy, a shepherd kid, when he fought the giant Goliath and won. Or how about Peter? Peter was just a lowly fisherman when God called him, and Peter became the primary leader in the early church. God takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things through them simply because they are available to him. So when it comes to praying for other people, I simply need to make myself available to pray and take that risk and leave the results up to God, trusting him to bless and minister to others. That actually takes us right to the third observation. The third observation I want to share with you this morning is that powerful, effective prayer isn't reserved for the spiritual elite. It's for you, and it's for me. I just gave you a few examples. Moses, and Esther, and David, and Peter. James gives us the example of Elijah. He said in, verse, in James 5, verses 17 and 18, that Elijah 
was as human as we are. And yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. What's James talking about here? What's he referring to? Well, he's referring to something that happened about 900 years earlier, way back in the Old Testament during the reign of King Ahab. Now, the Bible doesn't have much good to say about Ahab. In fact, it describes Ahab as doing more evil in the Lord's sight than any of the kings who were before him. And at the top of that list, it tells us how Ahab had turned away from worshiping God and led all the Israelites as well away from worshiping God and had chosen instead to worship the Canaanite false god Baal and the goddess Asherah. So as a consequence, Elijah shows up and he prophesies that the rain is going to stop and there's going to be a drought in the land as a consequence of, Abraham, uh, of uh, Ahab's sin and his unfaithfulness to God. And that's exactly what happened. And this drought dragged on for more than three years. Three years. You know what it's like around here when it doesn't rain for a few weeks in the summer and everyone's talking about how much we need the rain? Well, imagine stretching that out over three years. Until finally, halfway through that, that third year of the drought, it all came to a head. And Elijah challenged King Ahab and the 450 prophets of Baal to a duel on top of Mount Carmel. It really was a sticky situation. But here are the terms they agreed on. Here are the terms. Each side was to set up an altar, and then they would place a sacrifice on top of that altar as an offering to their God. And then each of them, each, each group, the prophets of Baal and then Elijah, they would pray to their respective God, uh, asking their God to respond by sending down fire to consume the sacrifice. Simple, right? Well, the prophets of Baal went first. And they set up their sacrifice. And then they danced and they shouted and they cheered and they started slashing themselves, cutting themselves with knives, all in an attempt to get the attention of their God and get him to respond. But there was no response. And this went on for hours, all afternoon, right on into the evening, but there would be no response. Elijah, I love this, Elijah even started taunting them. He, he called out, shout louder. Maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's daydreaming. Maybe he's away on business. Maybe he's gone on a trip. Maybe he's asleep and you have to wake him up. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. That's actually in there. Take a look. Maybe he's, he's relieving himself, Elijah says. And this went on for hours until finally they gave up. And it was finally Elijah's turn. And just to make sure the odds were really stacked against him, Elijah instructed the onlookers to fill 12 jars full of water and to pour that on top of the sacrifice and on top of the altar. And so that's what they did. They poured the water, they completely soaked the animal sacrifice and the wood, the entire altar, until the water was overflowing and running down the hill. And then Elijah started to pray. Let me read what happened next. It's 1 Kings chapter 18. Verse 38 says, Immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all of the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, The Lord, 
He is God. Yes, the Lord is God. After that, we're told that Elijah went up to the top. He went up to the top of the hill and he started praying for rain. And before long, after this three and a half years with no rain at all, there was a tremendous rainstorm and the drought was over. Now, that was a pretty decisive victory for Elijah, don't you think? Wouldn't you think that he would have been thrilled with that? But do you know what happened next? Elijah was scared, and he ran for his life. Perhaps the greatest day of his life, the greatest victory of his life, yet he was afraid. He was depressed. He was exhausted, and he felt all alone. And this wasn't the only time that he felt like that. Read through his story and discover that there were other times when he felt all alone. There were times when he felt inadequate. There were times when he felt that God had abandoned him. There were times that he became depressed and just wanted to give up. We look at Elijah today as being a great hero of the faith. But as James reminds us, Elijah was as human as we are. Elijah was as human as we are. But wait, what about that other thing that James said? James also said in verse 16 that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So doesn't that essentially mean you have to be a hero of the faith in order to pray effectively? Well, I think there's a danger of us looking at what James says here and reading that statement as if it disqualifies us for effective prayer. But James didn't mean it that way. James didn't mean for that to be disqualifying. He meant for it to be empowering. Because who is righteous? Who is he talking to? Who is he referring to? Anyone who has been made right with God through faith in Jesus. In Romans chapter 3, verse 22, we read these words. We are made right with God. We are made righteous by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been made righteous. Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. This is so good. This is why I love the book of James so much. I love this statement that he makes that Elijah was as human as we are. Because there are times that I feel insecure. There are times that I feel out of place. There are times when I feel scared and inadequate. There are times that I'm around people that I respect, that I admire, and I just feel so out of my league. Even around some of you. Even around some of you. People that I admire and that I look up to as mentors and models of what it means to live for Jesus. And I might start to ask myself, what am I even doing here? What qualifies me to be around you? Much less being, be the one on the platform here this morning. But then this verse, this verse from James reminds me that Elijah was as human as I am. Who am I to limit what God can do through me? If he wants to use me to call down fire or to call down rain, who am I to say he can't? Powerful, effective prayer 
is not reserved for the spiritual elite. It's for you and it's for me. And that's good news. As we wrap up here this morning, I just want to share with you three questions. Three questions for you to ask yourself when it comes to prayer. The first one is this. Do I see prayer only as a way to get what I want or as an invitation to enter into the life-changing presence of God? Because prayer isn't meant to be like a vending machine. You don't put in the right amount of change and push the right code and get what you want. That's not what prayer is about. Prayer is the greatest privilege of the Christian life because we get to connect with God himself. And we are changed as a result of that encounter. Question number two. Am I watchful for opportunities to pray with and for others, allowing God to bless them through me? Because God wants to use me to bless others, and he wants to use you to bless others. What an incredible thing that is to realize, that we are part of his plan. So instead of hiding from those opportunities or shirking those responsibilities, am I watching for them? And am I ready and willing to embrace them? And question number three. Will I pray bold prayers, understanding that God invites me to be part of what he is doing? I don't tell God what to do. I participate in what he is doing. It's not up to me, it's up to him. I just need to be available to what he is doing and trust him for the results. He invites me to be part of the process. Effective prayer is for me and it's for you. Can we pray together? Lord, we want to just pause right now and thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the reality that prayer is for all of us. That we are all made righteous because of you. And because of that, you invite us into your very throne room. Lord, for those of us who may feel inadequate, who may feel insecure, who may feel like this is, this is really for someone else, I pray, Lord, that you will remind us and instill within us deeply that this is for all of us that you invite all your children to come before you and you want to use each and every one of us powerfully. So help us to pray bold prayers for your will to be done in this world, prayers for other people, uh, for healing, for miracles, for provision, for direction, whatever it is, Lord, may we pray bold prayers, trusting you for the results. And we give you thanks in your name. Amen.